Hello, and welcome to a roundtable discussion on the Topic of Page podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, I'm joined by guests for a lively conversation on a topic we hope you'll find interesting. So, my sister and I have just watched on DVD Back to the Future. This is one of my favorite time travel films. Uh, and we're going to have spoiler-filled discussion on, on this installment. Now, this movie was originally done in 1985. It was set in 1985 and then goes back to 1955. Uh, and really, to me, it is just a unbelievably fun film. It's got a, a great musical score, great writing, great cast. Well, I love the music for two reasons. It's got its own themes of Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. And it's got the period music for both periods, really. Absolutely. It, it very much establishes through the music the, the time period it's in, but it has that, that, that signature cue for, for Back to the Future. And, you know, they use it as the action, you know, music, as kind of some of the romance stuff. And mm-hmm. it, it's got a very kind of iconic soundtrack. Yeah. And for a movie to to hold up as well as I think this one does. Yes. Is is I think a bit phenomenal. And of course a lot of it is, you know, Michael J. Fox does a terrific job as Marty McFly. Uh Christopher Lloyd just amazing as Doc Brown. You know, I remember the first time I saw it just being blown away by his over the top crazy enthusiastic professor. And here again he was Bouncing off the walls with the revelations and the great Scott. Well, not only that, but Doc does so much of the exposition in this film. Yes. And without what Doc is explaining, the film doesn't really make sense. Because mm-hmm. somebody's got to explain, oh, we got time travel, Einstein's jumping over the minute, you're going to go back, it's going to be instantaneous, you know, all of those sorts of things. And... One of the things I did last night was uh, go through YouTube and just search on Back to the Future. And I think it was at the London Comic Con this year, 2015. They had pretty much most of the cast. Oh, wow. Now, the one I was seeing, uh, the video I saw, was predominantly the Michael J. Fox clips out of it. But but he was just really extolling the virtues of Christopher Lloyd, who was sitting right next to him on just what a wonderful, brilliant job Christopher Lloyd had done on the exposition, on explaining the stuff, and making it seem so effortless, so so easy to understand. Well, and natural, conversational. I think you recently watched a TV episode that I also watched that had a subplot running through it for Warriors in Pink from yeah. Ford. And don't get me wrong, I really enjoyed that subplot, but there were moments in it where despite the high-quality actresses they had doing it, it felt like an infomercial. To the point of I was wondering if that episode of Cedar Cove was sponsored by Ford. And yeah. not in a bad way. Yeah, no, but that was one where it was blatant exposition and product placement. Whereas Back to the Future had tons of exposition that was needed and well done, and also quite a bit of product placement that was in there. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to say it was needed, but I will say it was well done. 
Yeah, well, the only time that the product placement hit me over the head with the, okay, this is just a little, was when the high school kid has gone into the uh, soda bar, basically, and is asking for something sugar-free. I didn't see that so much as product placement as just, uh, it felt odd, even for the, you know. Well, it's the explanation for why he's been having the Diet Pepsis and the Pepsi Freeze, and is always looking for them. Well, and also why he asked for a tab, which at that point meant something different than a drink. It was just give me the check mm-hmm. or a Pepsi free, you know, it, and then saying give me something sugar free. Okay, it makes sense. But why did he, why did Marty want something sugar free? Yeah, I, I do not know many teenagers. When I was a teenager, I certainly didn't know any peers who were looking for a sugar free beverage. And I think other times in the film, he was drinking a regular Pepsi. Yeah. I did love, though, when he got Pepsi out of the machine, I forget if it was a diet or not, but he's trying to figure out how to get into it. And the person who doesn't know that he's Marty's father is having a conversation with him in the midst of this. He walks up, has a conversation, just takes it out of his hand, pops the top off using the thing on the side of the machine, and keeps going. And it was one of those natural a father would do it for his son things but the guy doesn't know i'm doing this for my son well and it's also just showing some of the subtle changes over time definitely because we get a lot of the this development housing development wasn't there 30 years ago kind of things Mm -hmm. or you know the person running for mayor in any time periods doing you know progress is my middle name the the standard uh uh, election stuff Mm mm-hmm and how in certain places things are interchangeable and in other places it's yeah we get a drink but it's 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 different yeah i liked the travel agency which in 1985 had that established in 1889 and because it was asked mr foster which had a location not far from where we grocery shopped in that same basic strip mall so at the time we saw this come out we were driving by and asked mr foster office almost every week well, I was, I'm roughly, I guess, a year off from the age of Marty McFly because he was saying he'd be about 47 or whatever mm-hmm. in 2015. I'm 46. It's 2015. Mm-hmm. So, you know, within a year or so. And I think people younger than us, in other words, in the, the teenage, early 20s years or whatever now, the concept of a travel agent. Yes doesn't make as much sense as it did back in the days before Travelocity, Expedia, uh, all of those things. Oh, I remember when we used to have to go sit in those chairs at the front of the travel agent's office for half an hour to 45 minutes or more while our parents were getting airplane tickets and working out travel arrangements. And those are the joys modern children have lived without. But that's the sort of thing that a 30-year generational gap... Mm -hmm. It just changes your perspective on things. And with this film, going back 30 years, that's that's pretty safe. You, you know what it was. Yeah. In the the later film, the second film, uh, they go forward yes. to 2015. It'll be fun to see what they get right, what they get wrong. And then, of course, in the third film, they go back to uh, 1885. Mm-hmm. And those other two films, this was done in 1985, and it was set a few months later than when the film came out. Like it came out in July and was set in October. And 
The other two films, I think, were uh, 89 and 90. And then Michael J. Fox in 91 was uh, diagnosed with Parkinson's. Mm, Yeah. And, I mean, just a career changer for him. He went from simultaneously filming this in Family Ties. Exactly. He was working the days on Family Ties, doing this, like, in the nights. I don't know when he slept. I don't think he did. I mean, I remember taking a tour of Universal Studios and being told that we couldn't go by the courthouse square because they had stuff set up for Back to the Future's filming Mm -hmm. and everything, and that they were just filming anything he could when he could. He uh, was one of the initial people they wanted. They had offered the role to Ralph Macchio from Karate Kid, Mm, who apparently turned it down from what I've read on IMDb. They wanted uh, Michael J. Fox, were unable to get him because he was doing Family Ties. And at the time, uh, I guess Meredith Baxter Burney was pregnant and taking some time out for that. So uh, Michael J. Fox was having to do a lot more. Mm -hmm. They had Eric Stoltz. They filmed for a couple of weeks with him. It just wasn't quite working. By that point, I guess Meredith Baxter Burney had gotten uh, off the maternity stuff, back doing stuff that freed up enough of Michael J. Fox's time. They were able to work out a deal with the studios and all that stuff to make that happen. But it was, he can't miss any of his obligations there. Mm-hmm. So they were filming, like you said, nights, weekends, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, with SAG regulations being what they are, you just have to wonder how some of those contracts and partnerships get worked. But the other thing is that the TV show knows they'll benefit from the movie. The movie knows they'll benefit from the TV show. So they want to work together on the scheduling in that respect. And Michael J. Fox was young. That helped a lot, too. Young, enthusiastic, and I suspect he took one look at that script and was dazzled. He got, I believe, a quarter million dollars for that film. And I believe he got five million dollars each for the other two. It was a career changer. Yeah. And I would love to know what would have happened with this franchise if he had not gotten diagnosed with Parkinson's. Mm. And continued doing acting full-time, you know, forever and ever and ever and stuff. Yeah. Now, the one thing that I do know would have changed is the research on Parkinson's. Agreed. Because one of the other things I watched last night was uh, an appearance Michael J. Fox did on Letterman in, I believe it was April 2015. And uh, David Letterman was just praising him up and down on having raised $450 million for Parkinson's research. Yeah. And, I mean, talk about just humanitarian effort, et cetera. And, I mean, that's just a phenomenal amount. It shows a, a certain level of uh, social responsibility. Now, granted, there's a certain uh, uh, self-benefit that Michael J. Fox gets to this. It was funny because April was apparently Parkinson's Awareness Month. Mm. And when David Letterman points that out, Michael J. Fox says, yep, I'm aware, fully <laughs> aware. <laughs> yeah. It was funny. He's got a good sense of humor. He does. And seeing... That uh, interview on Letterman, seeing the footage from uh, the London Comic-Con from this year, uh, Michael J. Fox has kind of that that twitchiness and stuff that comes with Parkinson's. It's clearly had a a, a major impact on him, but I think the impact he has had on it is more significant. Agreed. And again, this to me is one of the, the hallmark roles, not just for Michael J. Fox, but in time travel movies and stuff like that. 
Mm-hmm. This movie holds up. People know who Marty McFly is. Yes. You know, the, the DeLorean traveling through time is iconic. And for a sci-fi film, this has so few special effects. Mm-hmm. And most of the effects it has are practical effects. I was going to say, the uh, it's not even really tire tracks, but the, the flaming tracks, if you will, when the DeLorean vanishes. That was something that at the time people were blown away by. But like you're saying, it's a practical effect. And really, it wasn't that difficult for them to do even. Yeah. Well, I mean, everything from at the beginning where the amp blows out and he gets thrown back. Mm-hmm. That's a physical effect. Yeah. You know, yes, there's some effects uh, when the DeLorean travels, whatever. There are a couple. But for a very sci-fi heavy film with multiple travels in time, uh, for it to have been done so much kind of physically on set versus, you know, in the computer or what have you. know, some of that's just the time it was done. Yeah. But some of it also was the nature of the script. Uh, certainly in the second film, there are tons of special effects there had mm-hmm. to be. Yeah. But this one was just so beautifully made and conceived to not need that kind of stuff. Agreed. Well, there were so many things about this film that I enjoyed. The bookending feeling of his trying out for the band bit up front and his coming through to play the guitar at the end. Mm -hmm. Just little touches like that. They... They didn't come across as telegraphing or hitting you over the head with things, but they let you know when things were important, and they gave just enough foreshadowing. Well, there's also a matter of coming full circle. Yeah. You know, failing at the audition of the bands and then succeeding in front of the crowd. Yes. Uh, the the scene at the mall at the beginning, followed by kind of the replay of that scene at the end. Yeah. Going from Twin Pines Mall to Lone Pine Mall and understanding why that changed happened. Yeah. It was something where any time travel film, you've got to kind of understand what their thought on how time travel works is. Do you change the past? Was it always that way? Things of that nature. And this very much had a, you can change the past, and that has ramifications. They didn't seem to have a problem with there can be two DeLoreans in that time. He can go back 10 minutes earlier. They yes, left. okay. Things like that, which I was a little intrigued by because I was like, okay, is this going to cause some kind of paradox or anything? But no, they they never really touched on that. And Dr. Brown especially, he would just give these little lines, you know, Marty's all excited. Yeah, and dad stood up to Biff. He's never done that before. Never. There are times I would love to have kind of thought balloons for Doc. Mm-hmm. Because they were also at the beginning when it's like, oh, I developed time travel 30 years ago, and a thought clearly crosses his mind. Yeah. He gets a little bit of a chuckle or whatever out of it, but it's like, okay, what was that? Yeah. And you could read it as, well, that's when he met Marty, but at that point, he hadn't. He didn't. Yeah. It was still Twin Pines Mall. Yes. And then one of the deleted scenes leading up to the, the dance in the past Marty's like, if I don't make this work out for my parents, when do I fade out? And Doc's like, don't know, you know? And it's kind of, I I love that answer and I wish they'd left it in because so often it's a, well, if you don't do it at that point, the minute that's done, your history or or whatever. And Doc having very much a, we don't know the rules of this yet. Mm -hmm. 
we're figuring it out as we go. Yeah. And there are a lot of unanswered questions in the movie, but none of them are questions that are the answers are that important. Well, and they don't give you so much techno babble that you feel like you should have every answer. Well, I mean, even simple things that aren't uh, technologically based in terms of how to dock and Marty meet. Agreed. Don't know. Doesn't matter. You know, how does the flux capacitor work? It does. It takes yeah. a lot of energy. It works. Why does it need to go so fast? Don't know. How the math worked out. 88's a cool number. Yeah. And it looks an awful lot like infinity squared. Something who, like that. Who I knows? Know. I mean, yeah. But they just ask you to step into their universe, believe them and trust them, and they'll take you on a good ride. And they do. Well, and that to me is is the important part, is it's a very fun film. Mm -hmm. It never hit a point where it's like, come on, move it, let's let's get to that next scene, let's do something, or whoa, slow down, you lost me there. You know, it, it's got a good pacing to it, It's it's got a, a fun pattern to it and, and rhythm to it, and just the way particularly Doc and Marty interact. Yeah. I mean, they're off by at least a generation, yet they get along so well or and they're so simpatico well the way doc's eyes get big when marty's grasping for how do i introduce him and he comes up with he's my uncle kind of the i didn't expect that i like the sound of that i could be somebody's uncle i could be his uncle that that's an honorary title and i think it also makes him question what relationship they had in the future yeah you know how did that come to be yeah you know, that he is the one person Marty wanted to come be with, wanted to stay with, mm -hmm. trusted so much. There's a lot conveyed simply by the fact that Marty came to him and told him every truth. There is a, an inherent trust there that even the past Doc, once he realizes this kid's on the level, mm -hmm. it's like, I got to help him. This is, you know, they're back as a team. Yeah. And it's fun to see that when you've got the those two people working at, at parallel paths, each with slightly different goals. Doc, I think, is much to send the kid back as wanting to prove his stuff works, you know, and helping restore the timeline because that's the right thing to do. But also when they're at uh, cross purposes, Marty trying to save Doc's life by telling him the future and Doc not wanting to jeopardize the time stream. Mm-hmm. And you could argue a certain also uh, selfish rationale for that of anything he changes could prevent the time travel from working, could prevent Marty from coming back, could prevent, you know, who knows what ramifications it could have. Yeah. And just the way all of that plays out, you could argue the bit at the end where Doc has the bulletproof vest and had read the letter and, ah, what the hell, as a cop-out. But it's also very much Doc. Well, and I loved the... Very clearly, very aged, worn, taped together letter. Yeah. It it was not a simple decision for him to put that letter back together and read it. Mm -hmm. We can imagine over the 30 years he agonized about that. Should I? Shouldn't I? Mm -hmm. You know, and potentially almost throwing it into the fireplace a couple of times sort of yeah. and thing. That it stayed in that coat pocket for quite a while. The night of the storm where it got shoved. Who knows how long yeah. after that it came back out and he remembered what it was and had to face it. But the fact that in the span of, of the two hours-ish of the movie, 
they built a solid enough reality and true enough characters that are true enough to themselves that you can just kind of uh, rationalize these things away. Well, of course, that's how it would have worked. That's who those characters are. Mm -hmm. Has a certain quality to the writing, consistency to the writing, and integrity to the writing. Yes. And to the portrayal of the characters. Well, and I found it fascinating that Marty used one of the lines he'd been hearing from Doc Brown forever and drawing strength and confidence from to encourage his father when his father is saying that he writes science fiction but has never shown it to anyone. And when he gets back to the present, his father's first book is coming out, having been published. It makes me wonder what his father had been doing in that timeline. Me too. And it also, I mean, when Marty gets back to the future, I mean, before he leaves to go into the past, his uh, bro- older brother's working at like a Burger King. Uh, his dad has a, a nebulous job that involves writing reports and his Biff is his supervisor. Mm-hmm. Some office sort of a job. Yeah. Whereas when he comes back, his dad is now a published author. Not to say he doesn't still have a day job. Biff is no longer George's his supervisor, but it has a an auto detailing kind of a thing. So Biff's life took a total different turn. Yeah. Um, which kind of justifies Biff's actions in the next film, kind of being resentful of Marty because Marty ruined his life. Yeah. Okay, that's 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 a fair fair thing. But why then in this new future that Marty really doesn't know this family? Because his brother now has an office job, uh, his sister seems to be working at a boutique. I mean, things are better for the family. Mm-hmm. Yet all the kids still live at home. Mm-hmm. They all seem to live in what I would consider a middle class kind of a house. Yeah, in a neighborhood where the the neighborhood sign, at least when we saw it in the beginning, had graffiti on it. We don't know if this is just a better neighborhood now. Mm. And that's an interesting theory, that the entire place is better off. Yeah. Because of the events in the past. I hadn't considered that part. But again, Marty is in a different family. Mm. Yet his life is still similar enough that he followed through the same actions that that night at the the mall. Yeah. So I think there's a certain amount of of history wants to go down the path it wants to go down. You can change it. you You can tweak it. Maybe even radically change it. But do so at your peril. So I thought that was that was a lot of fun. They've uh, Zemeckis and Gale, the the writing team and stuff, um, have said flat out they're never going to reboot this while they're alive, and nor should they. I think they 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 hit the nail on the head the first time. Yeah, but I would love to see a a part four. I'd love to see more because this created such a fun reality to go play in. Mm-hmm. That it was a, a done in one. It, it concluded as it needed to. Uh, they had no plans for a, a future, you know, future sequels. But when the opportunity came about, they definitely went down that path. Well, I guess my question there, just thinking off the top of my head, is knowing that Michael J. Fox is married to a very talented actress, Mm -hmm. Tracy Pollan, and they have, I believe, three children. Suppose one of those children wanted to play the next McFly generation in a sequel. I don't know if they should play another McFly so much as, and we get to the, we'll get to this in the third movie. Uh, one of Doc's kids. Mm, yes, agreed. When I was watching the footage uh, from the London Comic Con, um, 
Michael J. Fox, and this is the first time I'd really seen any footage of him uh, from recent years, seemed to have some stuff uh, kind of around his head. I don't know if it was just something for the Parkinson's or, or what. Um, Interesting. But there was a certain, just again, uh, because of the way the Parkinson's, I assume, has affected him, almost, I don't say scatterbrained, but a little less, certainly less focused than he he was at the height of his career, mm-hmm. but an almost a Doc Brown-like quality in some respects. Funny. Yeah. That having him play the Doc Brown sort of a role to some younger actors hmm. could be a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah. You know? Well, I know he's done some good wife episodes and the commercials for those were fairly good. Um, we noticed while the movie was airing that uh, Leah Thompson's younger brother was played by one of the kids who went on to be on Wonder Years. Yeah. And Marty McFly's sister was played by one of the girls who was on Bosom Bice, I noticed on oh, IMDb. Right, right, right. I knew her voice was familiar, so I had to look her up. So just going well, back and Marty's- to- Eldest brother played Jimmy Olsen in uh, the the Christopher Reeve films, I believe. Yeah, see, it's just very talented cast. Oh yeah, all the way around. Um, you know, uh, Billy Zane was in there. Yeah, a uh, small part. I think he gets a line of dialogue across the three movies. So they they did a good job casting. But even if you've got a good cast, if they don't have the material to work with, it doesn't matter. If you've got the material but not the cast, I mean, it's agreed. Uh, really, it all can kind of came together. Yeah. Uh, having Huey Lewis in the news do the, the rock and roll type songs really worked. Huey Lewis is just a, in the news, great band from that era. Agreed. And captured the right sense of energy for mm-hmm. the film. Uh, Alan Silvestri's score. I loved it. There was, from what I was reading, concerns of his, you know, was he going to be the right guy or not, you know. And apparently at one point they, the Zemeckis scale and, and whatnot were listening to it and got to a point it's like yeah that that's the kind of stuff we need not realizing that was actually Silvestri's stuff how funny and i don't know if that was the the back to the future cue or you know what i mean mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but when i went off to college there were very few soundtracks that i wanted to mm-hmm. have on cassette but the back to the future trilogy uh there was a musical or two i wanted um, around the time I was in college was when the Three Musketeers had a movie that came out, mm-hmm. and that was another powerful soundtrack. But the fact that really all three of the Back to the Future movies were just right up there. Well, having seen this movie, I think when it was in the theaters myself, I don't know if you did or not, but having watched it numerous times since, having seen the sequels, both in the theater and later, the fact that this holds up so well 30 years later. Mm-hmm. The music holds up 30 years later. And again, the the sequels, how often have we had a, wow, that first film was great. They do another, man, I wish they hadn't. They they tainted it or something. Yeah. And they they didn't have that here. But when Universal went and did the sequels, they kept as much of the original cast as they could. They, they changed to play Jennifer. Mm-hmm. The actress from this film, I believe her mother or somebody had some kind of medical thing, so she wanted to deal with that. And, and Elizabeth Shue comes in. Oh, okay. Uh, which which worked well. 
but that was one of the other things from what I was reading in IMDb about how they would have done things differently if they'd realized they were going to be sequels. Mm. They would not have had Marty's girlfriend in the car at the end. I can see that. Because as we'll notice when we watch the second film, she's quickly kind of put off to the side somewhere. Yeah. Because it's, it's not her story. No, it's a, it's a one-person adventure, really. I mean, Doc, in this one, he keeps coming back to Doc. But this is Marty's adventure. I think if they had done the ending a little bit different, I mean, they almost could have cut that last scene with Doc and, and Marty and Jennifer all flying to the future. And the, f- the f- second film could have easily been Doc's adventure in the future. Yeah. Imagine Doc being stranded in the future and having to interact with the Marty of the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, that could have been a lot of fun. But obviously, you know, what they did worked well. Yeah. Uh, it also spawned a two-season animated uh, series. I don't know if I've seen much of any of those. I don't think I have. I'm curious, but I don't think I've seen them. Um, one of the things I have ordered, and I had thought about doing it in time for, for recording this episode, but I can't for reasons I'll get into in a second, but I've ordered this whole stuff on Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. We're watching the, the DVD set, but there is an ultimate edition Blu-ray set that's got all three films, both seasons of the animated series and like a light up flux capacitor packaging, but it doesn't come out until, uh, October 21st or something. And, of course, that's when this will get released because that's the date they hit in the future, which is part of why I figured, what the hell, let's let's do a, an episode on these films. Mm-hmm. Plus, there's the upcoming uh, Back to the Future comic book series that uh, Gail is, is involved with. And because of the 30th anniversary, I mean, we saw stuff at Comic-Con this past year mm-hmm. uh, with, you know, they're really gearing up the merchandising for this. Mm-hmm. As they should, I hope it gets enough renewed interest that they decide to to certainly not reboot the series but continue with it yeah expand the franchise mm-hmm. you know certainly keep uh, christopher lloyd uh, michael j fox and as many people involved as possible but i could see this turning into something where there there are a lot more fun adventures to be had in this agreed um but again, I, I really enjoyed this film. It's it's one of my favorite time travel films. I loved it. I thought the Ronald Reagan stuff was priceless. Apparently, Ronald Reagan loved this film enough that he kept a copy at the White House that he could watch at any point. Often replayed, had them replay the segment with uh, him being president and, well, who's his first, you know, his vice president type stuff. And liked it enough that he quoted it in his next State of the Union address uh, the we don't need roads. Yeah, see, it it was priceless. It was fun, and it's also funny for for it to have had that kind of a slant on Reagan compared to the Alex P. Keaton character who just adored Reagan in Family Ties. Agreed. So it was it was a fun kind of uh, callback acknowledgement or whatever of Michael J. Fox's other role. Um, and also, man, the DeLorean is just a cool looking time machine. It's an awesome car. I mean, I can't count how many times we went to Universal Studios and they had the DeLorean on display. They had the kit car from Knight Rider on display. And the fact that both those cars were equally cool kind of baffles me. What's funny, though, is I think the the kit car has a certain practicality advantage. True. Because with this DeLorean, uh, what I was 
watching last night, one of the common themes was what a pain, essentially, it was for Michael J. Fox to work with. Because when he was having to do all the scenes where he was doing the shifting gears and all that stuff, when he would shift forward, he would basically wind up hitting uh, his hand on the numeric display stuff, getting banged up that way. When he'd have to shift back, he'd end up hitting the flux capacitor stuff. When he was getting in and out of the car, the gullwing door wasn't quite working right, so he'd always bang his head. Gosh. I mean, it was practically like the car was out to kill him. Oh. So I think he had a certain love-hate relationship with that in terms of, he. I, I don't know that he really enjoyed the damage he was taking, but I, I certainly hope he really enjoys the uh, the fame, the fortune, and uh, belovedness I think he's gotten having been in this film. Yeah. You know, he, he did a, a, a fantastic job, as did everyone connected with it. Agreed. So, anything else on this one, or move on to the next? I think I'm ready to go back to the future. Part two. So, we have just finished watching Back to the Future Part 2. This came out in 1989. Agreed. So, a good couple of years after the first one, it was shot kind of back-to-back with Part 3. I don't think they'd finished writing part three by that point, but they had enough of the basic game plan that they were able to kind of plant some seeds. Oh, definitely. There's foreshadowing of part three. There are wonderful callbacks to the first one. And I like that they call it part two because it's not a sequel in the traditional sense. It kind of is and isn't. It's definitely continuing the story. From where it left off. Every movie picks up right on the heels of the previous one and overlaps a little bit. Mm -hmm. So part one, part two, part three makes sense. But it is a sequel in so much as there are clear parallels between all of the stories. Definitely. And I mean, that's part of why I find all three movies to be such fun. Well, and I mean, going to the clear parallels, I think the final scene and some of the final dialogue was almost taken directly from the first movie. And I liked that. It was a reversal of who's saying it to who, etc. Yeah. No, there are definitely times where they kind of flip, you know, Doc and Marty's kind of signature lines sometimes, or just who's reacting to what and why. And it's a lot of fun. And this is one of them where the first film had a lot of the practical effects. Mm -hmm. This one had a ton of visual effects and you know, computer effects and whatnot. Well, and and really showing the range of the actors. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Particularly when, in a couple of cases, you've got the same actor acting opposite themselves Mm -hmm. on the screen. Mm -hmm. The scene where we get old Biff giving the almanac to young Biff. In the VHS days, there were two versions. Because this would be something that was letterboxed. Now, these days, we all have widescreen type stuff for the most part. So... We see it in the original format. Mm-hmm. But back when you had uh, uh, the TV dimensions were, were more narrow. Did they have pan and scan? They had a letterboxed and they had a pan and scan. Oh. So you've got the pan and scan version of the two Biffs. And basically you're, you're looking to the right at the one. It pans to the left to see just the other one. Pans back to the right to just the old one. Back to just the young one. 
Mm. And it's like they do all this work and the pan and scan just kind of gets rid of it. Yeah. But if you don't do that and you try to just, you know, uh, uh, full frame it, you wind up with just half of each of them or something. Well, and that particularly was a scene where the actor had clearly done a lot of thinking about his performance for both halves of the character, if you will. Yeah. Because there were moments where... As both younger and older Biff, he makes a point of looking off to the right to think. And he has his head cocked at the same angle. And you can see, yes, this is the same profile of the same man at different ages. Yeah. And it was those little touches that he didn't pause on so long they slammed you in the face with them. Well, but they were just there for you. Uh, the actor who played Biff, uh, I'm blanking on his name. Oh, I want to say, well, if I say I'll be wrong, I was going to say Thomas F. Wilson. But I, I believe you're right. I think that's exactly it. Um, he's not one that became a huge star after these movies, but he's an incredibly great actor for this kind of a role because he plays young Biff, old Biff, grandson of Biff. Griff. Griff. Uh, so he plays a couple of different characters. They're all in different versions of, of Biff, uh, of current day Biff, like three different ones or whatever, over the course of, of the movies. And then we'll see his great-grandfather in, in the third part when we get to that. But he's got a consistency to the characters, yet differentiates them enough. That it's like, yeah, this guy aged, this guy mellowed out, this guy changed, he was the wimp, the, the, the bully, whatever. Mm-hmm. And... It just, there's a, a, a trueness and a consistency to the character, yet a differentiation where needed. Well, and that's seen really well in both movies. But I was going to say in the first movie where at the very beginning we see him in 1985, mm-hmm. and then at the end we see him again in 1985, but affected by the events. We see three different versions of him in 1985. Yeah. Original, after the, the first, and then in the altered timeline. Yeah. And, you know, it's fun to see the consistency and the differentiation of those. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain nuance to, to his performance that's easy to, to kind of just overlook. But the fact that he could, you know, hit his marks, particularly in some of those scenes where he's opposite himself and the eye lines are always right, the, the, the timing is perfectly in sync. Yeah. And... You know, there are a couple of ones where old Biff is sitting in the car when he, they first meet and young Biff's outside. That's flawless. And this was done with more of, I believe, a uh, kind of an optical green screening kind of compositing because uh, of the time frame it was done in, whereas now it would all be in the computers or whatnot. And you could also do some of this with like a uh, motion capture kind of a thing to make it a little more flawless. Mm-hmm. So they had to do it kind of the hard way. And then Michael J. Fox, when he's sitting at the dinner table as old Marty, Marty Jr., and Marlene. Yeah. Uh, I mean, all of that. I mean, one of my theories about time travels with certain modes of time travel, and this being one of them, something happens to the, the genetics of the time traveler to kind of reinforce them to, to really bring home that family <laughs> resemblance over the generations. Yes, yes. Um, And... You know, this is also one where we see a lot more time travel in this film. The first one, they go back, they come, Marty goes back, or wait, Einstein jumps forward a minute, Marty goes back, Marty comes forward, Doc goes forward, um, 
Doc comes back. That's it. Yes. This one, we see Doc going forward and coming back, or actually just coming back. Um, and then they go forward. Biff goes back. Biff comes forward. They go back. At the end, Doc goes back. I mean, there's quite a bit. Plus, we see some of a recap of, of one or two of the jumps from the first movie. Well, and I really loved seeing scenes of this movie taking place with scenes from the first movie flowing in the background. Or in the foreground in some cases, but yeah. Yeah. The two Martys and two Docs at the same time in the same 1955 having to kind of either interact or avoid as needed. Yeah. And it really kind of layers on the... There was one 1955 that had none of that. Then there was the version we see in the first movie. Then there's this version we see, Mm -hmm. you know. And there's presumably another version in between that had Biff having gone back with the almanac, but before Doc and Marty did. Well, and in terms of that, we have one scene going to the layers where I almost wish we could see it in 3D because it would have really enhanced the scene to some respects. We have Biff in the extreme foreground hiding with a tree between him and the car that's just been repaired that Marty is now hiding on the curbside. So the car is between him and young Biff, who's complaining to the guy who's trying to charge him for the repairs. Mm -hmm. So if the tree weren't there, Marty could see old Biff. Yeah. And if the car weren't there, young Biff could see Marty. They got the sight lines and stuff like that believable. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, there are some movies where it's like, how can you not see that? Now, there was an aspect of that here. When Marty's in the back of Biff's car on the radio to dock. Granted, Biff has the radio on. Yeah, I... But the walkie-talkie, it's like, come on, you're you're a foot and a half behind him. Yeah, I felt bad for you during the viewing of this movie because I started yelling at the screen at that point. (laughs) That was one that was a little contrived, a little uh, hard to to believe. And it's funny because I got what they were going for which is the walkie-talkie was creating interference in the car radio so biff if he was smarter or more alert would have been aware something's not right and later he did use that to realize wait i think marty's around but he was like you said a foot and a half away and marty's talking in a loud enough voice that a 1950s walkie-talkie can pick it up and carry it and granted you're in a 1955 car making some noise it's a convertible and you're in the open road you've got the radio on but he's a foot and a half behind you and i've been in convertible so it can be hard to hear so yeah but there but... wasn't any real sense of the wind noise to be had no and marty was yelling into the walkie he wasn't yeah. whispering that was one of the places where i felt this from a writing point of view was a little weak the other one was when old biff came back to the future mm because it's like, how did he get back to that timeline? Yeah. That was, again, another point where I kept asking you questions during the movie. I would have liked, in the chalkboard scene in the 19, Altered 85, uh, for, for Marty to have asked Doc that question. And basically, Doc do, well, it takes time for the, the ripple effect to go through. This is what happens. Start diagramming. Hang on. Let me think. Yada, yada, yada. And then finally, Marty, you know what? 
it just doesn't matter. <laughs> yes, yes, and I would have been on board with that. But of course, I kind of feel bad for Marty's girlfriend who got sat down, sound asleep, on a porch swing, on a porch where Marty's looking around going, I don't remember these windows having bars on them, and forgotten. Well, one of the, the interviews I saw was basically Bob Gale saying if they'd realized they were going to do sequels, she never would have gotten in the car. Yeah, I, I get that. And they kind of address it here with Doc saying, but I couldn't leave her. Yes, on the one hand, I get that too. But on the other hand, I think I think what happened with her in the future was good. It was, but she was too too accepting of the time travel. She just bought it, okay, no problem. Agreed. And then I want to know all these things. Agreed. It would have been nice if she and Marty had had a conversation between Marty's return and Doc showing up. Yeah, Some, but there wasn't time for that, and they'd already kind of set that timeline in the first movie at the end of it. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm willing to accept those things. I don't have a, a big problem with that. Well, and in keeping with this conversation, though, I felt like Marty was such a confident guy in the first movie that this movie introduced something that kind of nagged at me. Yeah, the the don't call me coward. Yeah. I thought they hit that very much uh, over the top, uh, hit us in the face with it. It was anything but subtle. That was one of the other things I think was a weakness in this film. And they didn't really sell the concept. They explained the backstory of it, but... As I recall, that's something that in the end of three yes. comes into play and it matters. I just wish that it maybe had been given a setup here. Maybe something happens where some somebody calls him coward. Something happens where it's, I should have reacted differently if yeah. I'd stood up something, you know, and create that foundation here that creates that characteristic to him. An argument could be made that it's a reaction to his father having been such a coward. But he was so confident in movie one that that, that seemed to be the reaction. Yeah, they could have sold it better regardless of what justification they wanted to use. And I think they should have, but they also covered so much ground in this movie. They did. I'd forgotten how much was in this movie. I'd forgotten the whole future casino, the school burned down six years ago section of the movie. I mean, I think this was probably the, I don't say the best written, because I don't think it was, but the, the most sophisticated story of the three. I grant it's been a while since I've seen the third, so I mm. need to reserve a little judgment there. But the first one had a pretty... I don't say linear story because it jumps around back in time, of course. It's time travel. But a straightforward story. Yeah, pretty easy to get. Yeah. You know, he interferes with something. He's got to go set it right here. We've got a couple of different things we've got to go bounce between. Oh, wait, let's call back to the first movie. Let's set up a little for the third. Let's do this. Well, and this has some more ethical, if not discussions, and at least thoughts in it. You know, Marty seeing that sports almanac, being tempted by that sports almanac, somebody making a seemingly innocent comment, and then Mari saying, okay, that's it. I've gone from temptation to I'm buying it. Well, and then to basically be annoyed with Biff for stealing his idea. Well, on the one hand, he's annoyed with him for stealing it, but on the other hand, he sees the consequences of acting on the idea. Yes. He and realizes it was, it was his fault. Yeah. And that's the ethical, like I said, whether you consider it a discussion or merely thoughts. He goes from the, 
how do you react to temptation to the what do you do when you realize if I'd acted on the temptation? All this, and not necessarily all this exact bad stuff, but something bad could have happened. Unforeseen consequences. Well, it was basically Doc was right. Yes. You know, which is why he burns it without question at the end, the the almanac. Yeah. Well, now, see, I gave you grief or the screen grief for that because we're in the middle of a horrific windstorm at this point with rain coming, admittedly, in an open field full of flammable material. He should have at least done it on the road. I agree with that. But I remember seeing this in the theater, getting to the end of the movie. Doc is... You know, been bounced in time. We get the the Western Union man. We see Doc sending Marty from the first movie. Marty running forward. Doc, Great Scott, collapses to be continued. And I, I was just outraged. You're ending it there? Yeah. I need this next film now. Yes, yes. And it may have only been like six months later for the next film. Well, but we had the advantage over a lot of viewers because we already knew they'd been doing some overlapping of the filming. We knew they filmed them back to back because we'd gone on that tour of Universal Studios when they were filming. Mm -hmm. So we knew that there wasn't supposed to be a long dreaded wait. But as soon as we saw it, we're like, okay, give us the next piece. We know you got filmed. Well, and also just the moment, it, it literally ends very much on a cliffhanger. Yes. You know, what's going on with old Doc, all of that stuff. And even six months feels really long. Oh, yeah. Even though it was much shorter than the four or five years between, you know, the first and second parts. But there was, I mean, the, the first part ended on a nice clean note. Yes, there's the, oh, what about your kids? But eh, you're starting a story there. Yes. You know, and... I loved the use of Western Union to deliver the letter. Yes, that sort of a thing is a a bit of a time travel trope, but it's a fun one. Particularly the guy saying, yeah, we had a little bit of a betting pool at the office. Exactly. That was part of what I loved about it. You know, and it's funny because going back to the almanac, for all of Jock's saying you can't use your knowledge of the future, etc., Doc went with the company he knew would still be in business 70 years later. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> But that was not knowledge of his future, but knowledge of the future, which is a fine line. He's not changing his destiny. Agreed. Um, so, well, and just because I like to mention the product placements, um, Pepsi Perfect does not exist yet. Correct. Uh, they have a, a few more weeks to invent it as of this recording. Um, Ask Mr. Foster, which was in the first movie, even in the bits from the first movie we saw. It was conveniently cropped around and out. Uh, there was the scene where they're sending Marty from the first film forward. It's in the background, but it's blurred because of the depth of field. Yeah, and that is convenient because within months after this movie came out, Ask Mr. Foster changed their name. And became part of Carlson Wagenlit. I think the Got sale it. was in progress at the point this movie came out. And so they probably didn't pay for the uh, participation, etc. That's one of the things with product placement, though, is it's very much for in the moment. Yes. And decades later. I mean, there was a point here in uh, Texas where all the Texacos had changed to uh, shells, I guess it was. So there was no Texaco to be had. Mm -hmm. And Texaco was one of the other major product placements. Well, and I liked the Texaco in the future. 
I liked how this movie had callbacks to the product placements from the first movie, the the mayor, the the mm-hmm. uh, the manure truck, all of those things, and how they got. With the exception of Crispin Glover, I think the entire cast back stem to stern. Um, Elizabeth Shue was yes, that's right. They had they replaced uh, Jennifer. Yeah, but that was I think that actress's choice. The original one agreed. Whereas Crispin Glover, my understanding is he had just asked for more money uh, or too much more money or something. Yeah, and they're like, eh, no. And I get it because it's not his story. First mm. movie, okay, it was a lot of his story. But they moved past that. He was just a uh, not even. I mean, bit player. I mean, supporting cast even's a bit much. Yeah. Well, the main scene that was new material that that actor was in was product placement for Pizza Hut. Yeah. Well, and it was just how is how is Marty's family turned out? Yeah. You know, they didn't. I don't think it was essential that George and Lorraine were there. You know, it was nice. It was handy. When the main use of George there was that George was alive. Mm-hmm. And I mean, when you think about it, that doesn't seem like much, but when you consider what Marty goes back to. The alternate 85 where he's dead. Yes, that does matter. Okay, that's fair. So. But they could have dealt with that with, yeah, I just heard from your dad, that kind of a thing. Yeah. You know, or let's get ready for your dad's party or, you know, something. Or done one of those AT&T video phone calls. Well, I'm saying they could have done it without even needing to see Dad. Agreed. Yes. Um, and it's one of those things that in the movies, I mean, it's it's Marty, it's Doc, Jennifer to a lesser extent, but Biff is really the other, the third main character. I was going to say, I would definitely put Biff above Jennifer. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's just, again, how certain aspects of, of Hill Valley just stay true over time through the generations. Mm-hmm. And there's an aspect of... Things change, but everything's still kind of sort of the same. Well, they have that Hill Valley sign with the uh, rotary wheel on it. and The I think- Kiwanis Club, the, 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 the yeah. social groups. In the first one, it's in the center of the square. In this one, it's a floating sign at the off-ramp. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Our, our roads don't hover like that yet. The whole Skyway kind of a system. And yeah. what got me there is like one of the signs is, well, next stop, Boston, you know, Denver, London, or whatever it was. And they seem to spend a lot of time in the air getting to and from Hill Valley or the outskirts where they live or something like that. There was it, bad traffic in Hill Valley in the future. I would have liked for it to have established that. Hill Valley is one place in that hill crest or wherever they live, three states away. Yeah, really? You know, it's in the suburbs, but it's it's across the country or something. It felt like it. You know, change that, you know, it's now one global city or something. Yeah. Something to where the, the time they spend doing exposition or whatnot up in the air makes sense. Well, and the courthouse square in many ways stays the same, but it changes. It mm-hmm. has the... Uh, the pond, uh, well, the subway... Yeah. Well, and the subway turned out to be underground shopping. I saw a sign on that. Ah, uh, I was wondering what that was. Yeah, because in, um, in one time frame, I want to say it's 85, it's parking. It's grass in 55. And in the future, it's the pond. Okay. With uh, underground shopping beneath the pond and behind the pond. And the courthouse has become a mall in the future. Uh, kind of as you're facing the courthouse to the right is a movie theater mm-hmm. in every time frame. 
And uh, no, we're not up to Jaws 19. No, but it's funny how many of the things have, have, have gotten recycled that were big deals back then. Yeah, well, and it's funny because we may not be up to that holographic uh, shark leaping out at you, but we're so into the 3D movies yes. at the moment. Which is funny because that's something that was big in the 50s. It's some cyclical aspect of, of society. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, the Texaco station still being on the square kind of amuses me because finding gas in downtown environments is becoming more and more difficult. Yeah. Um, what got me was that everybody, uh, the, the hover conversions yeah. were a big deal. And it was like $40,000 or something. Now you could argue with... Uh, inflation that's not a big deal but it implies that the hover stuff which is a major mode of transportation is new enough people still need to get their cars converted well but remember doc gave marty 50 dollars when he wanted to go buy a pepsi that's why i was saying even with the the inflation yeah so you know that would be say it's a hundred times kind of a thing so that'd be what four hundred dollars you know if you went down to a 50 cent soda kind of a thing yeah um, probably about 800 because I think it'd be closer to the dollar. Anyways, uh, it just kind of, there's a certain implication of at what point is certain technology at in that future? Mm -hmm. Well, and I guess the other question is, do you want to buy a new hover car or do you like your classic car and want to convert it? That's what confused me is why convert something versus just get a new. Yeah. But it also implied with the Mr. Fusion and other stuff like that, that it's you've already got most of the parts. Let's just adapt what you've got versus replace. Yeah. Uh, implying almost a more ecological kind of a thing. The other thing I noticed in the future was when they're first landing and stuff in the alley, there's all these uh, kind of garbage things. They all seem to be like laser discs. That's funny. I was noticing kind of the cubed but Trash. they were cubed, but in the yeah. cubed were the laser discs. How funny. I didn't notice that part. Oh, I should have pointed it out. I'm sorry. Um, all in all, like I said, it's it's a fun film. It holds up over time. It's a good complement to the first, a good lead-in to the third, mm -hmm. arguably too good of a lead-in to the third. Because, mm. uh, I, I, again, that cliffhanger aspect. Yeah. But it never hit a point where it's like, okay, move on. Um. No, but it's got these fascinating points to it that just make you stop and actually think about the characters. Mm -hmm. You know, to realize that there were defining points and turning points for Biff, particularly. Yeah. You know, and when you consider that even when Biff needed to stand on his own two feet, he starts the auto detailing business. So it was never that Biff is a stupid character. Not totally stupid, but a little lazy, certainly a bully. Aspects like that. It would be, it would have been nice if it had ended in a, a, a route where Biff or his family kind of learns their lesson, gets on the right path, and is yeah. a self help guru or something like that kind of a thing. Yeah. If somebody could teach Biff not to be a bully, that'd be a miracle. But imagine what a, a really interesting world that would have been at the end. Yes. Um, but one of the other things, I had watched a uh, YouTube thing about the video game getting re-released. Mm. And Bob Gale was saying how there was never going to be a, a fourth Back to the Future. But this game was yeah, kind of sort of what it might have maybe been like or something like that. 
one, I was disappointed to hear there would never be a fourth. I hope that doesn't hold true. Yeah. And I hope the the uh, interest with the 30th anniversary kind of renews some passion about that. I'd love to see a, a continuation. Mm-hmm. But also, there was a comment he made about to the video game people about how time travel is never the solution. It's usually the problem. Yeah. Which is just a, a bizarre concept, sort of, for a time travel film, but it very much holds true. You know, they often accidentally travel to a certain amount of time, try to use it to, to do something, but inadvertently screw something up and have to go fix it. Mm-hmm. And to a degree, that's a major trope of time travel. You know, it's either you're always going back to fix something or you've always gone back and you've messed something up, um, which, you know, makes sense and it's fun. And it, it really kind of shines a light on the mindset they had with this film, with these films. Definitely. I mean, from the very first film, Doc was saying, you know, don't tell me anything about the future. I can't know. By the third film, he's singing a different tune, as I recall. Oh, absolutely. But in the first film, the basic crux of the problem was Marty having traveled to the past and caused his parents not to meet. Mm -hmm. In this film, the basic crux of the problem is Biff having gone to the past with the almanac. Yeah. You know, it's something somebody proactively or accidentally did Mm -hmm. that they spend the rest of the time cleaning up. Yeah. And there's a certain amount of you can't get back to square one, which is is fun and I like it. It's got a a fun energy to it, a a good upbeat stuff. I love just the characters of Marty and Doc. They're they're a lot of fun to watch. Biff is the kind of character you love to hate. Yes. You know. And there are very few times I agree with that statement. It's one of those, he's a bad guy, but he's not an evil bad guy, not a irredeemable bad guy. Mm-hmm. Which is part of why it would have been fun to have seen some kind of a future where it really, it, things fell in line for him. Yeah. You know? Um, and again, I'd, I'd love to see a, a, a continuation of the franchise. I'm looking forward to the comic series, uh, miniseries and stuff. So this was, again, a bit of a, a departure from the first with the visual effects, the overlapping and the stuff. Definitely continuation, picking up on the heels, and definitely kind of, in my mind, a true sequel because it, it had callbacks, it had variations on the theme, it had the same energy and style to it. And it would be one of the few movies I would classify as a really strong sequel. Mm-hmm. You, you knew what to expect from the first and you got it here. Yeah. And it wasn't just a repaint of the first script. Yeah. For me, one of the things I love about these movies is, first of all, the DeLorean. I mean, you've got that defining, I don't want to call it a prop piece, but... Cool, cool time travel machine. You know, but then you've got that whole courthouse square. They took the time to establish that location in every time frame. Yes. And I really like that. And that's something that... I think in the third film will pay off. I think it already paid off in both of these already, but I agree with that. But that's also something that I think is what makes the film work. These films, it's easy to treat it as one trilogy, yes, you know, Yes. but what makes this, this whole franchise work so well is you can imagine standing in that courthouse square. Definitely. And you just kind of know if I turn this way, I will see this. If I go down this street, I'll see that. If I go down this street, I'll see that. Mm-hmm. If I rip the handle off of somebody's scooter and make it into a skateboard, no matter what time frame I'm in, I can have a great car chase. There'll be something of which to do that with or some mm-hmm. such. I'm mm-hmm. curious how that'll work in the, the 1885 time period, because I know they've got a similar sequence, and I'm pretty sure I remember how Marty gets around, and it wasn't as fun. 
No hoverboard? No hoverboard, no skateboard. Man. Uh, but still the uh, uh, getting dragged forward by the, the locomotion in front of you. I was going to say, as, uh, I, as I recall, recall, he gets dragged by the horse. Oh, I was afraid you meant the train. No. Um, well, you know, horsepower has to be invented. It does. It does. If you can't invent the horsepower, find the horsepower in nature. Um, I got to say, though, there, there's an aspect of the third film, and we'll talk about that after we watch it, that I really enjoy because they, they tweak the sound cue. They get the old West mindset in there. And this was fun with the 50s, with the future stuff, or what's now present-day stuff. Uh, and, of course, it's not that they got the future wrong. It's that they were doing an idealized, you know, future from that point in time. I just loved seeing the the tech they hoped we'd have. The fingerprint door open for every house. I didn't take it as tech they hoped they'd have. But take the 50s to 85, mm. okay, and then kind of mirror image it. Mm-hmm. 3D was big back then. It'll be big again. Well, and if we've already moved to microwaves, then hydration will be the next thing. Exactly. Yeah, I can see that. It's it's not... It was a very 50s-style future in some respects, mm-hmm. influenced by, well, we're halfway there. I, I love the front door of the house with no doorknob. I, I thought that was a little ridiculous myself, but... You don't want to trap people in your house once they enter? No, uh, not really. <laughs> the The shade with the, the screen was interesting. What about the fax machine in every wall? We still had telephones in 85. We'd had those for ages, so faxes were big. Why would we get rid of them? So I can... Yep. I, I don't fault them there. Oh, I don't fault them for that. It was the in the wall of every room, even the... I, I don't know what room actually Jennifer ducked into. That might have been home office. Home office, whatever, study, yeah. The bigger thing was how nobody had any kind of... Or did they have cell phones or whatever in the courthouse square scene? Nobody seemed to have that I was aware of any kind of cell phone thing. But Doc had that thing he would hold up that reminded me shape and size a lot of a current cell phone. Yeah. It was giving him different information. That more or less was a smartphone. It was kind of binoculars too. Yeah. And I think that was so they could do the callback to the 50s with the yeah. binoculars there. Yeah. And I liked the newspapers that kind of... As the ripple caught them, updated themselves. I did, but I didn't like how the newspaper in the future updated itself with the photo before the photo was taken. Agreed. I would have liked for the photo have been, as the photo was taken, the thing updated. Yeah. And it's like, this is so fast. Well, it's only a day. Yeah, yeah. You know, and have it be a, a second or two. Something to where you could almost, geez, okay, Biff goes back, uh what 50 years or whatever at that point 60 years yeah um so he's gone back 60 years if it takes x amount of time per day say a second do the math you've got this amount of time to get the hell out of dodge before those changes catch up to you yeah and biff's already used x amount of that time you know it would have been interesting if as they were going out in the delorean we started to see the time change yeah and that's something that the Continuum TV show in the first or second season did wonderfully. Yeah. yeah. It's just they're, they're panning across the city and you see the decades flowing across. There are countless things I have enjoyed immensely in the Continuum TV show and that is among them. It's a great time travel show. And I think Looper did a similar sort of an effect in that movie. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, but given when Back to the Future was all done, that wasn't really a viable option. Oh, no, it wasn't. I think given the technology options they had for doing the effects and everything, they did really well. Yeah. I mean, the hoverboard on the water. And- yeah, the hoverboard effect was well done by and large. There were some where it was blatantly you know, digitally done and composited. Agreed. But part of what I liked about the hoverboard on the waters, first of all, the whole kind of riff on the you can't walk on water, not stated but implied. But then at the end of that sequence, when he realizes all these guys are coming after him across the water, and he just jumps in the water with the, I'd rather get soaking wet than deal with them. Yeah, I don't want to get hit. I'll get wet. Yeah. Which goes counter to the don't call me a coward almost. Yeah. That was that was the one part that just didn't quite connect for me. Like I said, he's such an innately confident person that it didn't work for me. No, but I think some of that was so they could give the perception of character growth in this film and the third film. Yeah. And I get the the desire to do that. And I'm not saying it was a bad idea. I'm just saying the execution didn't come off perfectly. Agreed. I, I just wish they had, like I said, had some scene that established. Somebody called him a coward. It worked out bad for him. This is something he needs to overcome during these movies. Yeah. And again, they were trying to set that up here. They just stated it versus sold it. Yeah. So, like I said, this is this is one of my favorite time travel films. All three of these are. Uh, just because they're they're such fun, they're so wonderfully done. Um, I just I hated how this left off with a we've we've got to see that next film now. Now I don't remember in the theater if they had the uh, trailer at the end for three that the DVD had. I'm trying to remember. Like I said, I remember so clearly from the having gone on the tour of Universal Studios and the guides having been talking about the films being made, etc., that we had I, those hints. I recall Marty coming forward, Dot going down, to be continued, and just, you know, you've got to be kidding me. And I don't recall if, if we saw the trailer after that, because it's, it's been, what, 25 years almost, yeah, yeah. so... Most of what I remember, and it's just sort of that vague feeling from the advertising and stuff, was that you you knew you wanted to go see part three because you were going to see the clock face get put up on the courthouse. There's and that an photo really coming full circle on the whole thing. Yeah. In this trailer for the third movie that we just saw, they had a photo being taken of Doc and Marty with the clock face before it goes up on the courthouse. And I just remember that photo of them in their old West getup being used to sell, go back to the future. And there's a certain aspect of the symmetry of Marty going back to save Doc Mm -hmm. that that I think is going to be fun. Well, and in a way, Marty's always been saving Doc. The two work well together is what it comes down to. Oh, they They do. They have each other's back. Yeah. They're looking out for each other. And with the miniseries, the four issue miniseries that uh, IDW is doing, I would love to get some kind of backstory as to what originally cemented that relationship. Mm. Not even necessarily how they first met, but some kind of how do those characters see that? What built the trust? Yeah. 
Yeah, that would be fascinating. At what point is this more than just some guy Marty works for, some kid Doc hired or whatever? Because mm-hmm. there's not even a sense of money changing hands ever between those two. Yeah. So it's it's one of the better kind of sci-fi duos or whatever in, in time travel stuff. I agree. Yeah. Um, of course, I'd put, you know, uh, Sam Beckett and Al Calavici from Quantum Leap up there, too. Agreed. And that's another one where you've got a definite age difference. You've got a definite sense of trust. These guys are, mm-hmm. you know, uh, on the same team or whatever. So great film. There were a couple of places for the compositing, not as well as I would have liked, but overall holds up really well. A uh, solid uh, second part of the franchise. And looking forward to seeing the third. Same here. So we just finished watching Back to the Future Part 3, the final uh, Back to the Future movie, uh, unless they decide to make more, which I'd be wholeheartedly in favor of. This is one that I think makes a good bookend to the first one. Definitely. Because the first one is essentially the love story of Marty's parents. This one is essentially the love story of Doc Brown and Clara. Which, if you think about it, Doc is kind of a, a secondary father to Marty. Yeah. So that gives it a certain symmetry there. Uh, and it's also very much a travel back early in the film, have the adventure, travel forward at the end kind of thing. So there's a lot of very direct parallels, story structure-wise, to the first film. Well, and we've never been in doubt that Marty has his girlfriend. Marty is going to grow up and... I want to say earn his happy ending mm-hmm. through the course of these movies. So Marty doesn't need his love story. So what the audience needed in terms of a character getting their happy ending was Doc. The reassurance that he wasn't going to be the crazy bachelor uncle forever. Well, and also it's a fun bookend to his getting shot dead in the first, the beginning of the first movie. Yeah. You know, he had a very unhappy ending at the beginning, so for him to get the happy ending at the end definitely is nice. But it's interesting that not only does Marty never get kind of his love story, because he's in a good relationship throughout, but I think that was one of the things kind of missing from the second film, is there was no real love story component to it. Agreed. There were lots of assumed relationships and assumptions that I want to say relationships had happened. And I say that because obviously at some point Biff had a relationship with someone. He must have. He has a grandson. Fair point. Fair point. And we never get any inclination as to how in the future Biff's life had evolved because there's no even mention of him having a significant other in any of the 1985s we hit. Well, in the alternate 1985, when he's married to Marty's mother... He'd mentioned two other ones, yes. And that's all we know. But you're right. In uh, the original time frame or at the end of the first movie, beginning of... Mm -hmm. You know, any other time we get to this this era. Whenever he is doing auto-detailing. That's what I meant. (laughs) There are enough timelines here. It does get kind of confusing. It does. And I found myself differentiating timelines by things like, okay, Biff is doing auto-detailing. I know which timeline this is. And Mm -hmm. it's funny because that makes me think of the TV show Sliders. Yes. They were trying to get back to their reality. That was a parallel world one where they were going through and they were trying, like you said, to get back to their reality. Yeah. And I remember there was one episode of Sliders where they thought they'd gotten back to their reality. And most of the way through the episodes, 
episode one of the characters calls another and says, how many times have you heard it on the radio and not noticed it's the Azure Gate Bridge? Yeah, versus the Golden Gate Bridge. I remember that episode. I've got all the seasons of Sliders. I don't know that I've watched all of them. I don't think I got the, through the final few seasons. That was a show I liked tremendously before sci-fi put their stamp on it and went with more of an alien take than just a parallels. That was around the time I faded out of it. Uh, I think I was also traveling a lot at the time. Yeah. I, I liked their take on the parallel worlds, which to me is a lot like these alternate timelines. They're similar because... Uh, the the concept of a parallel timeline is it it's not necessarily truly parallel it, basically the same events happen until something is different yeah which is just a fine line of distinction between it is one timeline that branches yeah and we see a number of things in these back to the future movies like here at the beginning um when they realize doc in the old west has died they break into the library again yes or for the first time depending how you look at it and they get um the photo of Doc Brown at the uh, the clock tower clock before it's installed. And, he's, and then we later see that photo get taken with Marty in there. Yeah, I was going to say he's standing alone yeah. with the clock face. And it's one of those photos that's been uh, pasted up, if you will, for an exhibit in a historical society. So it's got a nice little caption under it and everything on uh, black paper. What annoyed me at the end is we've got that in the wreckage of the DeLorean. And it's key that it's in the wreckage. But we only have the Doc Brown half. Because it got torn and destroyed in the wreck. But if it had been torn horizontally versus vertically, we would have seen that it still had the, the Marty, that it had changed because Marty was there. And But see, that's why they had it as the gift at uh, the end. Agreed, agreed. But it implied that Doc, after Marty has gone back to the future again, uh, had gone, built the, the train, gone to the future because he got the hover conversion. But yeah. also, to go get that photo, to go find where he could find Marty, that sort of a thing. I have conflicting theories on the train at the end. Okay. Because, and this is why, see, once again, I tell everyone listening, you are so grateful you were not in the room during the movie with us. I yelled at the screen again. Multiple times. <laughs> Poor John. Okay. Towards the end, because I love to skip to the end of the movies well, in these the conversations. Well, it's the part we just most recently seen, so it's freshest in our minds. Yes, of yeah, course. That's true. Okay. Good use of the hoverboard at the very end. Yeah. I'd kind of forgotten it was in the car, but good use. Okay. Magic, you know, Doc Brown, who's never been on the hoverboard before, catches the little foot handle. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Uh, I buy that as easily as I buy Marty being a, a pretty competent horse rider. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, he goes over and saves Clara, who mysteriously was not worried about her hair getting caught in the train. Uh, the the gears in the train. I had yes. less concern about that, although it's a very valid one that I just hadn't thought about, than at the end when Jennifer is reaching up showing the facts to Doc. And there's the part of the train that's got like the fan blades swirling out. It's like you get a little too close to that. You're getting your hand slapped off. Yeah. Okay, so he's got Clara. They're on the hoverboard. Do they go the DeLorean? Do they go to Marty? No, they go whipping off into the hillside. And so I scream at the screen, where are you taking her, Doc? What bothered me with that is after he had let go of the train, he's still moving forward at a pretty good clip. He is. No loss of momentum on those things. And, well, they had kind of established in the future part where we first saw the hoverboard, Marty made it 
three quarters or more across the pond before he had no energy and nothing to kick off from. So you're going to lose some, but Doc didn't lose any. He had more weight on it, and they were also higher up. And he was going a lot faster than Marty was going at the time. So I I questioned, okay. The physics of hoverboarding was never made clear is all we're saying. Exactly. Okay, so when should he have dropped like a stone? How quickly, where, etc. But why didn't he go towards the DeLorean? Why did he go off towards the hills in the sunset or sunrise? But my other thought was, okay, what if he's circling around to the back? Which makes no sense. But he's circling around to the back of the train engine, thinking that maybe he can get caught in whatever time wave vortexy thing that DeLorean creates. No, he wouldn't be thinking that because they know the, the train's going to go crashing. I and know. we know that the time field or whatever you want to call it pretty much only covers the DeLorean because the uh, the streamer from mm, the, the end of the second right. film fell. Fell and the, uh, the lightning rod got yanked off. So he couldn't have been trying to get right above it. And I want to know who put the fireworks in under the wood. I think that was one of the uh, the special logs Doc Brown had. Oh, okay. I just want to know how he had coated the logs to where they would only start igniting at a certain temperature. I have to say, on the one hand, I loved the color-coded smoke. I thought that was brilliant. I would have liked a line earlier in it where he was at the uh, the, the postal service, the Pony Express or whatever it would have been, with no packages coming in and, man, you order the funniest things. Yes, Yes. You know, because he presumably he had to mail order this stuff. Yeah. For whatever chemical composition and crap he put in this. Yeah. I would have liked Clara spending a tiny bit more time at the blacksmiths, not just finding the vehicle labeled time machine, deciding to believe and following, but looking more at the diorama. Yes. I would have appreciated that and also noticing the point of no return. Yes. But that scene also paralleled the first movie. When Lorraine visits the garage and it's, oh, quick, cover the... No, the you're thinking of the first time Clara comes to repair the telescope. I'm thinking you're right. First time of that. Sorry. But you're, I'm totally in agreement that they have law scenes like that that were excellent parallels to the other movies. Well, parallels without feeling redundant. Like, geez, I've seen this. It's, it's callbacks. It's a, everything is different but stays the same. You know, the poor actor who played Biff spent a lot of time in manure. Mm -hmm. I loved it every time, I have to say. And there's a part of me that wants to hit Wikipedia and see if the name of the company changed. Because I'm pretty sure Jones did did manure. It was A. Jones or D. Jones. What I'm almost curious of is if you went generationally. Alphabetically? That's what I'm wondering, yeah. Yeah, me too. Because I just thought it was priceless. But I think we only really see it in... 1885 and 1955. I don't know that we see it in 1985 or 2015. I think it's because we see it twice in 55 and in separate movies. Yeah. That that's why it works so well. They spent the time, though, and put the care in of, of, you know, what would the city have looked like back then? What would carry forward? What wouldn't? Agreed. And there's a certain amount of once you've established a business or whatever, if you're moderately successful, it can go for quite some time. Well, and I liked the saloon's setup and the way that it had aspects of it, like the bar, that were reminiscent of the soda. I liked seeing it versus the soda shop in the 1955 versus the 80s cafe. Yeah. 
And do we ever really get a watering hole kind of a thing in 1985 in any of the movies? I don't think so. Uh, well, because it was the uh, the exercise place when yeah. we go around the the clock the the square the first movie. Marty had a uh, Pepsi in the present in '85, but I don't when? think early because that was how we knew he was going to order a Pepsi in '55. But I don't think it was at Watering Hole. This is where, because the movies are so similar, they start to blur, which is a pro and a con. Well, they're, they're so similar, and we get Marty going to the, the drinking establishment, getting something, encountering a, a tannin of some sort. Yeah. Biff, Griff, Buford, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, going around the square, you mm-hmm. know, and there are certain things that they hit these same notes numerous times. But it it makes for a good melody, a good song, if you will, they, versus, geez, yeah. do something new. I mean, I never felt that way in these films. They do it so beautifully. And one of the things you pointed out right at the top of the film was the music. I love the music in this one. Yeah. Uh, the music is awesome in all three, don't get me wrong. But there's something about adding kind of the, the horns and giving it that Western vibe. Mm-hmm. It really jazzes it up some. When they went more instrumental and more classic Western with the soundtrack, mm-hmm. but they kept that melody that was that definitive, this is the back to the future melody that you know you're expecting to hear. Yeah. And yeah. because that was riding on top of these Western themes to the music, if you will, that you were expecting to hear, the two just blended together to make this new sound. Mm-hmm. And you're sitting here going, wow, the 1880s went to the future. There's an aspect of the music where, like you said, they've got that signature theme music for for Back to the Future. And sometimes they just play it flat out. Okay, let's start the film, do the opening credits. There are other times where they kind of slow it down a little. Mm -hmm. Or they uh, they give it almost a lullaby thing at one point in this one. And um, it was funny because you had just commented during the film, I love the way they're slowing the music down as the characters are coming in and one of them's falling asleep. And then they went into the lullaby sound of music right as they showed us a character sleeping. And it was such a natural transition of the music that if we hadn't been at that heightened awareness on the music. Yeah. I'm not sure I would have caught it, but because we were talking about it, because we weren't in a theater. It's something, though, that that I have a a heightened awareness of because of some of the shows I watch. There's an aspect of Doctor Who at times where it's got that this is the Doctor's music. He's going into his riff. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of like, again, Airwolf, uh, A-Team, you know, you've got that signature cue when the A-Team is building the, the armored vehicle or whatever. Uh, just like in Mission Impossible when they would be, okay, they're doing their stuff. Yeah. With the Super Sentai shows, every season they've got a brand new music thing, uh, score, theme song, etc. And throughout, it's like, okay, let's kick this in for the fight scenes. Let's do this for a, a, a more character-based kind of a, movie, a moment or the team's coming back together or whatever. And they've got those audio cues throughout the Back to the Future stuff. There's the the i'm not even sure how to describe it the music they have where it's it's almost like a raindrop kind of mm. a, a sound effect of okay you know we're, we're kind of like moving into the next scene or we're doing mm-hmm. something like that you know it's between that the 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 orchestral stuff the 
the signature stuff, the key uh, uh, rock songs or whatever. You know, well, it, it blends very, very, very beautifully, very well, very great. The Power of Love, a song that was in the first movie that was in here and both times very well used. Mm-hmm. But this time when I heard it come on in the radio of a car that was in a scene that wasn't really about love, it was the drag racing scene. Mm. I'm sitting here going, wow, an interesting place to choose to put that song. Well, uh, Double Back by ZZ Top. Really well done. I love seeing ZZ Top as the the band in the Old West. And you could argue that whole Saturday night party they've got, very reminiscent of the school party in the first. Definitely. But different. Yes. Yeah. It was essentially, though, the prom kind of dance thing that, that Doc went to instead of to Marty. Yeah. So seeing those reversals, seeing those twists, seeing those layers. Yeah. And, I mean, there, there are a number of books about writing where this, here are the seven plots, or the eight, or the 38, or 36, you know, whatever magic number that that person chooses, depending how fine they split the hairs. These, the first and the third movies are very much, very different movies, but very much the same movie at certain levels. Mm -hmm. And that second one is kind of a nice pivot point between the two, because you spend half of it in the future, half of it in the past, and kind of it's got a different feel to it without violating the feel, the tenant, and the 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 nature of the universe. Yeah, well, and it's interesting to me that in the third movie, I was expecting, based on the scene in the library, we see the photo, and it's yeah, that's my, I believe it's great grandfather William, the first McFly born in America. So I'm thinking, okay, so that's the ancestor we see in the Old West, and okay, yes, we see him, but he's like a nine month old baby. Much like we see his Uncle Joey. Yes, yes. But instead of that being the, in this case, ancestor he interacts with, it's that one's parents. And instead of him being a helpful or positive influence on the ancestors, they really are a positive influence on him. Absolutely. And in that respect, definitely a reversal from the first film. But he finds out about an ancestor he never knew about about things from his family's past he never knew about and things he just had never stopped to consider. Well, and it was that aspect, those interactions with Seamus, that gets Marty out of the don't call me coward phase. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, again, nice to see somebody doing for Marty what Marty did for his father. Yeah. But there are certain things that are almost universal constants in this universe. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if you were to map out kind of the timeline. If the period of time in 1985, or actually, was it 1985? It was 55. I was going to say, when they go break into uh, the library, if that was more or less the same duration. But it was it was a few decades off, aren't I? No, they, they break into the library in 55 and 85. Because that, that was my point, is I thought it was the same moment in 85 in both time, multiple timelines. Oh, I see. But... Um, yeah, no, it's alternate 85. Alternate 85, Doc does it off off screen, mm-hmm. and then it's 55 when they go back and find out because of the headstone mm-hmm. what well, happened. And I meant to ask if you noticed at the end of 2 when Doc gets sent back to the West, the tracks the DeLorean leaves because it's hit so bizarrely by the lightning aren't the straight tracks. No, they're almost like a 99 kind of a thing. Yeah. 
like a reversed 99 almost. Well, it's almost like it spun the thing yeah. around or whatever. There were, uh, on the IMDb page, a lot of questions about how could it have gotten to 88 miles an hour that fast? But it's it's a, he says clearly in this film that the, the circuits got overloaded. It's basically, it pumped not just 1.21 gigawatts, but a bit more or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently it was a more powerful lightning strike or well, and it took, because it was in flight or who knows. It took the direct hit. It didn't go through all that wire. That's true. It didn't go through any kind of capacitor reduction or whatever mm-hmm. Doc had set up with the, the clock tower. Yeah. It's just a, a lot of fun how they've got these parallels that, you know, hey, get struck by lightning. I mean, we see that key moment with the clock tower and the DeLorean in the, the, the square in all three films. It, it's kind of at the beginning of this one mm-hmm. and at the end of the other two, which again kind of makes for a good you know, reversal and bookend. Well, and the 1880s really was a time when a lot of those courthouses were being built mm-hmm. across the United States. So I liked seeing that very real part of American history worked into this film. I'm not quite sure why they started the clock running down on the ground before they were going to install it up in the building. I guess because they didn't have PA systems and that was the easiest way to do it. They couldn't announce, hey, I'm doing it, whatever. Everybody seemed to have their pocket watch to sink it to. I don't know. Without a crane, how do you get it up there? Well, pulleys. They showed the pulley system. Pulleys and a lot of guys. Yes. Yes. They were showing off their pulley system early on. I I liked, though, them having the photograph there and Doc commenting how fitting it was for them to be there. Mm Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of, of moments around that time in the movie where, particularly when Doc saves Marty and they first kind of meet in the Old West. Just, again, what great friends these guys are. I have to say, because of the time we do live in where we go to so many conventions and we see so many prop replicas, there was a part of me that when uh, Doc saved Marty, was sitting there thinking, why has that gun not been sold as a replica? Mm, yeah. That, that uber... Old West with the amazing viewfinder. That was just an awesome gun. It was. And it's something that fits in a Comic-Con kind of motif. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost uh, not steampunk-ish, but kind of. Well, I was going to say, with steampunk having taken off in recent years, I would think it would blend nicely with the steampunk environment, personally. Well, and talk about, about a it. great cosplay for uh, an older fan. Mm. Doing the whole Doc Brown thing. Yeah. Because, again, he's a, a kind of a quintessential figure in time travel uh, for, for movies and TV and whatnot. I've seen bits and pieces of the cartoon. I haven't watched all of those. I don't know if I've ever seen one to completion. I don't think I've ever seen it. But it takes place after this, and it's predominantly the adventures of Jules and Vern, his uh, Doc's sons. Which makes sense to me. I always thought it would be fun for another film to pick up an indeterminate amount of time later, but those kids being teenage-ish, Marty's age, essentially, at mm-hmm. the beginning of the first, well, throughout the movies, really. I was going to say, he's pretty much 17 here, though the actor was, we figured, 25 to 30, give or take, doing filming. The actor filming. was almost a decade older, not yeah. quite. Yeah, and uh, we looked up Christopher Lloyd was closer to the 45 to 50, give or take, age and range. The- these were fairly physical roles for him. Well, especially the train part. That's what made me go looking. I mean, yeah. he was born in 1938. That film was done 1989, 1990 for the filming. Um, but he'd have been late 40s by that point, right? No, 
38 to uh, 89. So 40 to 50, you know, if you round up a little. So about, he did a great job, of course, but it's one of those things that these are not just go hit your mark, say a few lines. I'm looking at him on the front of the train, and even as I'm sitting there thinking, okay, they probably weren't on a moving train. They're on a still train with the fan going this, that, and the other. But just the quality of the acting to sell the drama of that makes it a very physical role. One of the scenes I liked just as a a fluid transition from what I presume was stuntman to actor. Marty wakes up, Doc's nowhere to be found. The the morning they're going to do the the trip back. Gets on his horse, rides into town, basically dismounts very fluidly, runs into the the Doc's place, the big barn area or whatever, Mm -hmm. the blacksmith shop, uh, and then runs right back out not finding him. Because I've got to imagine that dismount off a, a, a bareback horse or whatever, pretty sure that wasn't Michael J. Fox. It was incredibly smoothly done. Yeah, yeah. And they matched the wardrobe perfectly, you know, for him coming back out. And the timing was right. It's not one of those where, oh, they, they, they fudged it and it's obvious. Well, your wardrobe comment makes me think one of my favorite parts of the movie was actually when Doc Brown asks Marty yes. when he first sees him, who dressed you in this? You did. And kind of a, you know, hey, that's funny. <laughs> the other one was when Seamus's wife, uh, Leah Thompson's character mm-hmm. in this one, is basically, you know, you got to think about the future. Do you ever think about the future? Yes. I think about it all the time. Yes. To me, that's one of the signature moments of the 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 trilogy. Well, and I was thinking, you know, these days what's so common and the TV shows have picked it up, but it seemed to start in the movies, was sort of the four or five actors walking dramatically towards the camera for the action film. What this one had that I think for the time was kind of the equivalent shot was the actor wearing the hat with his head down and the dramatic brim lifting to reveal the actor's eyes sharpened on you. In this case, it was in the saloon. That, I think, was just a a homage to Westerns in general. To me, what I like that this film did, the trilogy did, along the lines of the the, the actors all walking forward, was the movie posters. Mm. DeLorean, door open, Marty looking at his watch. Second film, behind him, and he's in more or less the same pose, Doc Brown. (laughs) Third film, behind Doc, is Clara. That's funny. And it's one of those, visually, it's that's one, that's two, that's three. I can tell by the number of people. (laughs) Yes. And it's, this is going to be more of the same. If you like the first, you'll like the others. If you don't, forget it. Yeah. You know, and the, the trilogy stays true to itself. Yeah, they play a little fast and loose with some of the time travel here and there. You could argue, well, geez, they blew the fuel manifold or injector, whatever the hell it was they blew with the whiskey and stuff. Why Mm. couldn't they get it out of the other car? Well, stop. Think about it. If they do that, then Marty couldn't have come back. Okay, that's a bad plan. Let's not do that. So some of it, it, some of the complaints I've seen on uh, like IMDb and stuff like that, if you think it through a little further and go with the logic of the movies... Mm-hmm. And just kind of the necessity of of storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, it all pretty much holds together with future Biff coming back to 2015 is the one uh, I'm not so sure. Yeah. And well, even that we can excuse away. Yeah. Well, and like I said, I have multiple theories on the whole how did Claire and the Doc end up time traveling? Because part of it is were they trying with the hoverboard to get caught 
in her thing. Second, he's now stuck in the past, but he doesn't just have his own mind. And his he knows the schematics. He's got hers. She's pretty smart. And he's got all the parts in the hoverboard. I take it as he saved Clara. He was content to stay there. He knows they're going to be safe because they've seen the photo. So it's safe to stay. Mm-hmm. And safer than trying to get into the thing right before it smashes through to the future. So Doc and Clara stay in, in 1885. But he misses Marty. Yeah. She knows he misses Marty. Yeah. And he's a scientist. She believes in the time travel because he's had to explain this is what happened, etc. Mm-hmm. If you miss him so much, go build another kind of a yeah. thing. You're smart enough. You can do it. Kind of encouragement from Clara. Well, and like I said, with the parts from the hoverboard, that might get them over the the parts won't be invented. Who knows what's in the hoverboard that could be useful, in other words. I'm assuming probably nothing. nothing but he's got... He, he obviously could draw up the, the diagram of the circuit from memory. Yeah. So he just needs time. Clearly, eight to ten years has elapsed. He's got kids. Yeah. And they're not newborns. So you got to figure it's just he needs time to figure this out. Yeah. He built a refrigerator. Yes. In eight months or less. So if you need a steam-powered kind of a vehicle or whatever... You know, he can. He knows a, a locomotive can do it. it. Just takes a little time to go by it. You figure out what year that train was, etc. Mm-hmm. I mean, it. There's an internal logic to the thing to to the the trilogy that again, n- none of it you look at and basically say this just is inconsistent. Yeah. Well, and in a lot of cases of entertainment, that's one of the prime things you have to do is say within this universe. Absolutely. And the only thing that is a little inconsistent is Doc's view on future knowledge. He was content to live in the Old West, but, you know, he wanted iced tea. Ice. Yeah. But they had ice houses. Yes, but not as convenient, I guess. I I would imagine if we were to go back to presumably, what, 1895 or whatever would be where he'd be living at that point, he would have a place a little out from town. That's pretty modern. Yeah. That's that's just how Doc is. His concept of retirement is fascinating. It would be a shame if they never further this universe, because there are multiple ways they could do it. Mm-hmm. Everything from, you know, we pick up with, with Marty wherever he's at in, in the, the quote-unquote present day, and it's, it's Western Union. Yeah. It's another letter, or it's Doc's sons, or something. Yeah. You know, um, it would just be, again, it's a great, fun universe. Um, the The DeLorean is just a cool time machine. Uh, they picked wonderful actors. The story all held together. The The music was awesome. The action scenes were great. The only thing I would say was a, a, a not a downfall of the movies, but something that looking at it from today's perspective clear compositing clear you know what they could do with today's effects and Mm. abilities would blow it away yeah i mean i don't think they could approve much on the story and i certainly don't want them to redo the film or even redo the effects because i like these films as they originally were well it's funny because when it came out i remember thinking that clint eastwood was just this great pick i mean what the only thing that would have rivaled picking Clint Eastwood as a name would be like John Wayne. Mm-hmm. 
you know, but now I look at and I wonder, okay, kids today, does it resonate the same way with them? Or do they have the reaction of these characters of who's Clint Eastwood? Or what's a 7-Eleven or yeah. those other, what, what feels anachronistic now that wasn't then or yeah. vice versa? Because, I mean, these days, Clint Eastwood's doing considerably more directing than acting, for instance. Well, and even the acting, do you really think of him as a Western star these days? Yeah. So, picking that name, and even mention when he, he mentions it to Doc in 1955, oh yeah, you haven't seen him yet. Mm-hmm. And I like how Marty had to use aliases when he goes back. Yeah. And where he picks them from, how they get picked. Yeah, And again, the Clint Eastwood thing is a, a kind of a callback to the Calvin Klein aspect. Different genesis, but same purpose. Yes. And those callbacks, those parallels, that, that consistency and even repetition, but without feeling redundant. Well, almost every movie, Marty has to be reminded, you aren't going to crash into something. When you get up to 88 miles per hour... You're going to be into that other time frame. You're well, not I, thinking fourth dimensionally. I liked how he had to be reminded of that because really this was the first time he was driving into a solid something in, in front of him. Every other time it was open road. Mm -hmm. And having to be told by Doc you're not thinking fourth dimensionally in 1955 and reminded of that without the, you know, we're not going to have that track. And, you know, if, if he, it seemed like at first he didn't really remember that part of town. But then, oh, it's, 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 you know, uh, whatever it was called, Ravine. Yes. Whatever Clara's last name was. Clayton. Clayton Ravine. And once he realized, oh, yeah, then we're going to have the bridge, et cetera. As far as he knew at first, it's like, there's an empty, you know, a half-built bridge. Is it ever going to be finished? Is it still around? You know, I can see his, yeah. his confusion and whatnot. But again, the not thinking fourth dimensionally line. I love that one. Mm -hmm. So it's... Aside from the DeLorean, though, it's not a uh, a franchise that really had as much in the way of toy possibilities. Agreed. And that's something that's always been fun with Star Trek, Star Wars, certainly the Power Rangers and Super Sentai stuff, and a lot of other things where you've got that that widget or whatever. Yeah. You know. And again, I may try to find if there's good little diecast kind of here's the DeLorean at the different stages. Well, and I long since wore out my cassettes of the soundtrack, so I'm hoping that the soundtrack for the three movies is on CD. Last I looked, it was not yet. Really? I thought it was, because I knew I had it on cassette. I thought I had it, or maybe I had it as an MP3 that I got off cassette or something, because I, I, I know at one point I had burned it to a CD for uh, my alarm cock radio, because again, the, the, the theme music for this one, mm. just awesome. I love it. Yeah. Nice, upbeat, kind of energetic, you know, Western slash Back to the Future mix. So I'm I'm, I'm thinking it is on, on uh, CD. So we'll have to check at some point. But again, fun film uh, trilogy to rewatch. I'm looking forward to the, the four-issue miniseries that Bob Gale is connected with. Were I a gamer, I would probably go pick up the, the video game stuff. As it is, I may hunt down on YouTube and see if somebody's done kind of a playthrough. Oh, that'd be interesting. Because I watched one of those for the Injustice Gods Among Us video game for the DC Comics stuff, having loved the comic book. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wow, there's an actual full story here. It's kind of fun. And it was about, it was like watching a two-hour uh, computer-generated movie. 
That's very cool. I mean, there were a couple of scenes where it's like, fade to black, come back, you've got the health bars as somebody beats the tar out of somebody else, fade to black, go back to the story, you know, kind of. Yeah. But, okay, it's it, nature of the the nature of the uh, the medium. Yes, agreed. So if somebody knows of that kind of equivalent for the Back to the Future game that essentially turns the game into a movie, uh, I'd love to watch it because, again, that's probably the closest we'll be able to get to a new installment of this franchise. Um, because I would expect, even with the uh, the animated features, or the, the not the features, the, the two seasons of the cartoon, it's fundamentally different. It's based on, on Doc's kids versus Marty and Doc, etc. Different chemistry. Yeah, exactly. But all in all, really fun stuff. Really enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully everybody's already watched the films. I can't imagine. Hopefully. And I mean, if you haven't, or if you have, they hold up well. Yeah. I mean, if anyone has, has heard about them but hasn't watched them, I highly recommend it. They're just a load of fun. They hold up well. Um, and I think they're some of the best time travel films done out there. And really some of the better films from that era of, of movies. Agreed. So anything else? Does that pretty much do it? That does it. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.